but to make ourselves infinitely more susceptible to pleasure. Continental Philosophy Now podcast. By popular demand, today we're going to take a look at Foucault's piece, Friendship as a Way of Life. It's an interview that he did with the French magazine Gay Pied in 1981, in April of 1981. At the time of its publication, Foucault would have been 55 years old, and he died in 1984. So this is just three years before his death, and I think it represents... Um, a really in, interesting historical record of where he was at in his thinking about not only homosexuality, but alternative forms of culture. It's a very short piece. It's only about three and a half pages long, um, but it's chock full with really interesting provocative ideas. What I'd like to do today is to proceed by way of quotation I've identified three, roughly three ideas. They're interrelated, of course, but three ideas, and I've pulled a few quotes. So I'd like to read a quote, have a little bit of a discussion about the the ideas in the quote, and then continue and read the next quote. The three topics that I've selected is one, the, the question of homosexuality as a mode of life. Number two is his mention of a very provocative mention that he makes of asceticism as a model for thinking about homosexuality. And number three is his mention of Lillian Federman's book, Surpassing the Love of Men, which was published in 1980. So it would have just come out as he was doing this interview. Let's get started. In the first quote, Foucault says, another thing to distrust is the tendency to relate the question of homosexuality to the problem of who am I and what is the secret of my desire. Perhaps it would be better to ask oneself what relations through homosexuality can be established, invented, multiplied, and modulated. The problem is not to discover in oneself the truth of one's sex, but rather to use one's sexuality henceforth to arrive at a multiplicity of relationships. And no doubt, that's the real reason why homosexuality is not a form of desire, but desirable. The development towards which homosexuality tends is one of friendship. End quote. So here we have Foucault saying that the question of homosexuality is not a question of identity, of who am I, that will reveal the secret of who we are to ourselves, but rather that homosexuality is that through which we can begin to establish and invent different kinds of relationships. So for him, homosexuality and the what will become, well, at the time it would have been the gay liberation movement, was an opportunity to critically assess and to invent a new way of being in the world as a man. And the last part that he says is really interesting. He says that homosexuality is desirable 
insofar as it leads to the development of friendship. So he's talking about homosexuality here, not just as a sexual identity, but as a mode or as a process through which other things can emerge. Uh, Friendships, primarily friendships between men is what he's talking about. Um, Different kinds of multiplied and modulated modes of life. So he'll go on to say something like that in this next quote. And I should mention actually that this is this um, quote comes from later in the article. So he picks back up on this thread and develops it a little bit further in this quote. Quote, this idea of a mode of life seems important to me. Will it require the introduction of a diversification different from ones due to social class, differences of profession or culture? A diversification that would also be a form of relationship and would be a way of life. A way of life that can be shared amongst individuals of different age, status, and social activity. It can yield a culture and an ethics. To be gay, I think, is not to identify with the psychological traits and the visible marks of the homosexual, but to try to define and develop a way of life. And then he ends the whole piece re, uh, reaffirming this when he says, quote, we must think that what exists is far from filling all possible spaces to make a truly unavoidable challenge of the question. That is the question of homosexuality. What can be played, he says. So here he's further developing this idea of a mode of life, that homosexuality presents an opportunity for developing developing different and diversified modes of life that will cut across some of the other entrenched social differences like class and profession and cultural differences. And part of this, part of his insight here is the idea that in the 1950s, gay male bars uh, in these types of spaces were spaces where men came from all different social walks of life. What made them come here was that they could be uh, part of the budding and emerging homosexual cultures. And it was one of the few places in society where people from different social classes, um, professions, racialized identities, even, you know, parts of town could come and mix freely. So this is the opportunity that was presented. What will happen if those other differences become irrelevant or less relevant and new kinds of relations socially can emerge from this new kind of space that was being created because of a mode of life that was being identified with the homosexual. What he says at the end of the piece about what exists being far from far from filling all possible spaces means that we can imagine and we can bring about different kinds of social spaces than those which exist today. And that homosexuality is not just an identity, but it is a portal into the creation of new modes of life. And that it is this 
that is challenging for the status quo. It's not the fact that men have intimate uh, and physical relationships with each other or that they can do so. That has been as old as history, human history. But the challenge and the resistance comes from the possibility that different modes of life can emerge that trouble and come to challenge the status quo. That is a normative, what's called a heteronormativity. The heterosexual family, which is at the center and the core of not only instilling social values, but of capitalism. That is, if you look at the history of capital, as it is explained by both Marx and Engels, the nuclear family, that structure, the invention and the promotion and the repetition of that structure is what makes um, what makes capitalism early on possible and what sustains it today. So there's a pretty wide lens through which he's looking at this idea of what it means to be a homosexual. What is the question that emerges from that identity? The second set of quotes that I want to read have to do with his, his comments about asceticism. Here's a quote. Quote, asceticism as the renunciation of pleasure has a bad connotation, but aesthesis is something else. It's the work that one performs on oneself in order to transform oneself or make the self appear, which happily one never attains. Right, so this is the work of, um, this is the work of the self on itself to trans of transformation, of bringing about that self which does not yet exist, and this is a process that doesn't ever come to an end. Continuing the quote, he he says, yet it's up to us to advance into a homosexual essays that would make us work on ourselves and invent, I do not say discover, a manner of being that is still improbable. So he's saying here that as homosexuals, his, he considers the question of homosexuality to be about how to work on oneself and to practice a kind of assessis that would lead to the transformation of one's identity and one's self to, to create, to invent. It's a creative process, not one of revealing or uncovering some sort of secret, but a creative process that brings about that in those cultural spaces that are still improbable, he says. That's a really careful use of words. Not impossible, um, seems improbable here now, but as we continue to invent and to create, becomes less and less improbable. Let me read you one other little quote having to do with this. He says, quote, what we must work on, it seems to me, is not so much to liberate our desires 
but to make ourselves infinitely more susceptible to pleasure, end quote. And that is one of my favorite quotes from this piece. To make ourselves infinitely more susceptible to pleasure. Um, that makes me think about how in contemporary culture, we become uh, more and more numb, out of touch with our feelings, unable to think uh, through. And I'm not just talking about critical thinking, but to uh, use the thought process to analyze and to better ourselves. We become less receptive. So he's talking here about making ourselves more receptive to um, deeper kinds, better, well, I'm, I'm importing that, but to pleasure, basically. And not just, I don't think he just means physical pleasure, but um, the ability to create happiness, uh, pleasure, and here he uses the word pleasure rather than desire, right? It's not just about fulfilling desires and then moving on to the next desire to fulfill, but to have a capacity to feel and to feel pleasure, that that is something that we have to work on. It's not given to us. And that I think is a big mistake that a lot of people make, uh, whether they're gay or not. That is thinking that, why am I not happy? Uh, I don't understand how, how do I go about being happy? I want to be happy now, right? It's not something that is outside that you have to go and find. It's something that is inside that you have to cultivate by refining not only your sensibilities, your sense perceptions. Um, if you are a visual artist, you work on vision, you work on how you see and on communicating that, for example. Um, and that's not just a perceptual process, but it's also an intellectual process, right? It's all connected. Uh, if you if you are a philosopher, you work on the intellect, right? So you refine yourself, you create the capacity, and you create for yourself the way in which, what kind of capacity you're going to refine, the way into the possibility for pleasure and for happiness, so that is one of my favorite quotes. I want to finish up here with a set of remarks that he makes about gender differences and about Lillian Faderman's work. So here you go. Quote, there's a book that just came out in the U.S. on the friendship between women. Lillian, that would be Lillian Faderman, Surpassing the Love of Men, published in 1980. He says, the affection and the passion between women is well documented. In the preface, the author, that's Faderman, states that, states that she began with the idea of unearthing homosexual relationships, between women that is, but perceived that not only were these relationships not always present, but that it was uninteresting whether these relationships could be called homosexual or not. So let me just break in here and say there was uh, a, bit, a bit of a debate as to whether uh, what Lillian Faderman was uncovering were women who were in intimate romantic friendships who were or were not having sex. So the question was, were, was the intimate friendship physical in, in a way that would count, whatever that would, whatever that would be, count as a sexual relationship? Because some of the relationships were very deep and very intense and meaningful, but there may or may not have been a physical component for some or for others. So that's what he's talking about. 
Okay, I'm going to continue with a quote. By letting the relationship manifest as it appears in works and gestures, other very essential things also appeared. Dense, bright, marvelous loves and affections, or very dark and sad loves. The book shows the extent to which woman's body has played a great role and the importance of physical contact between women. Women do each other's hair, help each other with makeup, dress each other. Women have had access to the bodies of other women. They put their arms around each other. They kiss each other. Man's body has been forbidden to other men in a much more drastic way, end quote. So it is true that the history of homosexuality for men and women has been mostly divergent. There are moments in history where they come together. But uh, the problem is that homosexuality was something that was made explicitly illegal. And what was meant was male homosexuality because it was thought that women couldn't have sex because of how what it meant to have sex. Before the laws against homosexuality, which uh, the first laws were German-Hungarian, um, the first laws were uh, paragraph 175 of the Reich uh, Criminal Code in Germany in 1871. So that's the first year. The word itself, homosexual, doesn't actually get used in, in, in the way that we might think until 18, um, is it, it was like a century before that would have been 1750s. I'm looking here. Yeah. Uh, so the term homosexuality appears for the first time in a pamphlet that was written by Carl Maria Ken, uh, Kurt Benny. And it was a brief to the court. A, 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 um, a, a, what is it called? A friend's brief to the court where... Uh, he recommended that homosexuality not be criminalized because it's not something that people can be held responsible for because they were just that born that way. There are just some people that are that way. Um, so it was actually a pro-homosexual uh, brief, um, friends brief to the court. Nonetheless, in 1871, homosexuality became illegal and punishable. Uh, a punishable offense. Prior to this, there had been for several centuries laws against sodomy. And the thing about sodomy is that it was irrelevant. Your identity, your sexual identity was irrelevant. (laughs) Not very many women were accused or brought to trial for sodomy or in any way punished for it. Usually it had to do with the use of an implement and it was usually attached to some other crime like murder. Okay, so in 1871, homosexuality is identified and made criminal um, in Europe for the first time. And following this, we have the rise of psychoanalysis and the attempt to define what that is. And the whole psycho, uh, this whole uh, pathologizing of homosexuality. In 1895, you had the trial of Oscar Wilde in England. And that was a big turning point, I think, because at this point, the question of homosexuality became very visible culturally. And there was a, there was a lot of interest 
in trying to think about and to theorize about differences, not only gender wise, but sexuality wise. The history of women is a little bit different than the history of men where it comes to homosexuality because women have had the opposite problem, not of becoming more and more visible and more and more targeted by medicine and by the law, but being invisible. That is, first of all, not being considered able to have sexual relations between themselves, but um, not being visible when that was happening. So Lillian Faderman's work was really important and still is because it, it... went through and the historical records, we're talking letters and all sorts of things that fall through the cracks of what normally gets recorded uh, in the historical record of quote unquote man. Um, She went through and she uncovered a repeated history of women having intimate romantic friendships, whether or not they were quote unquote having sex with each other became less and less relevant as she looked at more and more of the materials. And what she came to realize is that whatever their configuration, these relationships were often the most intimate, most intense and most meaningful relationships that women had. An important example of this that you might be familiar with are the Boston marriages which at the turn of the, well, 1920s on, there was a first generation of women, uh, usually of the higher well-to-do classes, who were the first generation to go to college. And uh, it was thought that being educated was a really bad move if you wanted to get married. It kind of ruined you. (laughs) Uh, So anyways, there are a number of women who ended up setting up households with each other and who, for all intents and purposes, operated as a marital unit, um, what's recognizable to us as such from the familial heterosexual model that we have. So Federman really documents that in a pretty amazing way. And uh, if you're interested, you can take a look at the uh, book, Surpassing the Love of Men. I think that Foucault on the one hand, is seeing the opportunity that the gay liberation movement is presenting to culture, not just for gay people, right? Not just for homosexual men, but for all of culture as as it creates spaces where the transformation of other social differences can take place. Class, racialized differences, um, differences of culture and of political persuasions, that these spaces, these bars, provided an opportunity to reinvent what friendship in particular could be. Was he too optimistic? I mean, our model for friendship today seems to be Facebook. I think Facebook has really changed what it means to be a friend, but that's kind of far afield. Let's bring it back just a little bit. The point I'm trying to make is that He saw that opportunity and he saw that it was possible because he had read Lillian Federman's book. Historically, women have been able to achieve this, was his viewpoint. I think he's a little too optimistic about what exactly those women were able to do and what they went through in order to live the lives that they were able to live. Nonetheless, he saw that it was possible for women to have these intense romantic friendships and that the sex was irrelevant. And he saw the possibility for men to develop these types of cultural practices and to create these types of spaces. 
And that he saw as the real challenge of homosexuality, not the idea of two men getting it on, but the idea that the cultural order that's established through heteronormative practices, institutions, and spaces could be challenged if men were able to transform the way that they relate to each other. And I think that is a pretty important um, insight. Another, The other side of that insight is that women have done this and they haven't transformed society, which says a lot about both women's invisibility and their impact on the structural norms. So those are some of my thoughts. This is a little tiny essay that is chock full with a lot of other stuff um, that is really interesting. It's one of my favorites, I gotta, I gotta say, for Foucault. My other favorite is probably the piece on heterotopias, I think it's called. Um, and maybe we'll do a podcast on that. Hey, if you want me to do a podcast on Foucault's heterotopias, then tweet at me. I am at tfilosofia, and you can find a link to my Twitter feed at continentalphilosophynow.com. I will catch you on the other side of today, which is tomorrow.